very unequal prizes there, but there is a point behind it, which you'll get. So that was a, a very simple uh, game designed to reward whoever made the right decision at the end. Whoever made the right decision uh, ended up with the big box of chocolates. They could either steal and end up with just one, or they could make the right decision, let the other person keep the just rewards they've got, and then could keep it. I can see they're actually sharing between them as well, so that's great. They're making the right decisions now. Um, I'm now going to read Luke 6, verses 17 to 26. But as I do, I would like you guys to be thinking. I would like you to be thinking about that passage, and what I would like you to do is work out what is the connection between that game I just played and the passage we were about to read. Okay? It is slightly tenuous, but it is there. Okay? So what's the connection between the game that we just played and the passage I'm about to read? So Luke 6, Luke 6 17 to 26. When they came down from the mountain, the disciples stood with Jesus on a large, level area surrounded by many of his followers and by the crowds. There were people from all over Judea and from Jerusalem and from as far north as the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those troubled by evil spirits were healed. Everyone tried to touch him because healing power went out from him and he healed everyone. Then Jesus turned to his disciples and said, God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. God blesses you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. God blesses you who weep now, for in due time you will laugh. What blessings await you when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you as evil because you follow the Son of Man. When that happens, be happy, yes, leap for joy, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember... Their ancestors treated the ancient prophets the same way. What sorrow awaits you who are rich, for you have only your happiness now. What sorrow awaits you who are fat and prosperous now, for a time of awful hunger awaits you. What sorrow awaits you who laugh now, for your laughing will turn to mourning and sorrow. What sorrow awaits you who are praised by the prophets, for their ancestors also praised false prophets. Now, does anyone think they've worked out what the link is between the game and that passage? Anyone want to have a guess at all? I don't expect you to get it. I just really wanted you to pay attention to me when I was reading, to be honest. <laughs> okay, let me tell you, let me tell you. So it's tenuous because that game was just mostly an excuse to give out some chocolate, and I, I will want some of that, actually. Could you give me some? Okay. Not right now. Um, in that game, I presented the loser of round two with a choice. Do they do what is wrong and get the chocolate, or they do what, or they do what they, is right and risk getting nothing whatsoever? But if they made the right choice, they ended up actually better in the long run than if they'd made the wrong choice. Well, in those passages that I just read, Jesus presents two sorts of people. Those who follow him and do what is right, but that causes them to suffer in the short term. It causes them to become poor, to become hungry and sad. And it also presents those who choose to get what they can now, and they don't care about following Jesus. Those are the people who have food now, who have the wealth now. But the irony is that in the long run, it is those who choose to suffer now that in the long run end up with more and get blessed by Christ more. Jesus says that for those who follow him, life might be tough, in the short term, but he promises that ultimately 
that decision to do what is right will be worth it. Now, that's quite a big thing to say, so I'm going to break it down a little bit today. Firstly, we have to realize that in those verses, Jesus is predicting that for those who follow him, life might, in the short term, get tough. At the beginning of the passage, Jesus gathers together his disciples, and he preached to them a sermon about what their life will be like. In that sermon, he is upfront and he is honest about some of the situations that those disciples find themselves in. Jesus acknowledges that some of them right now, they are poor. Some of them right now, they are hungry. They do not have enough food to get through the day. Some of them are sad. They are weeping. There is no joy in their life. The picture he paints is clear. This group of people in front of him are people who don't actually have a lot going on for them. They are the marginalized and the outcast. And he doesn't present Christianity as something that will quickly fix their problems. It isn't a get-rich scheme. Jesus predicts that many of them will actually experience great pain for following him, for doing what is right. He says people will hate you, and they will exclude you, and they will mock you, and they will curse you as evil because you follow the Son of Man. He says you're going to be rejected. He says you're going to be hated. He says in the short term, things are going to be tough for you for doing what is right. Jesus acknowledges right then at the beginning of this big sermon that things are going to be hard for them, and for some people, it's going to cost them almost everything. Now, that might seem a little bit alien to some of us and some of our experiences of Christianity because our faith hasn't cost us everything. But for many Christians in the world today, what Jesus says there makes complete sense to how they experience Christianity. In a second, we're going to watch a video from Open Doors. Now, Open Doors is a Christian charity which serves persecuted Christians around the world. And one of the things it does is keep a watch list of 50 countries where it's hard to be a Christian. We're going to watch a short video which details the top 10 and what it's like to be a Christian in those countries. So do you guys want to play that? We'll see if it works. There are countries where Christians live in fear, where churches are bombed and houses burned, where following Jesus means sacrificing jobs, security, family. There are countries where you must keep your faith secret or it might get you killed. These are the countries of the Open Doors World Watch List. And here are the 10 countries where following Jesus costs the most. Number 10, India. Many extremists claim that to be Indian is to be Hindu. They want an India without religious minorities and they are using violence to achieve it. Number nine, Iran. Iranian Christians must meet secretly. Being discovered could mean long sentences in appalling prisons. Number eight, Pakistan. Christians in Pakistan are considered second-class citizens. Innocent believers are falsely accused of blasphemy. Thousands of women are victims of kidnap and forced conversion. Number seven, Nigeria. Nigeria is the country where Christians face the most outright violence. Many Christians have been killed or driven from their homes. Number six, Eritrea. More than 1,000 Christians are imprisoned for their faith in Eritrea. Some pastors have been locked up for over a decade without charge. Number five, Yemen. Yemeni culture is tribal. Those who leave the tribal faith could be banished or even killed. Number four, 
Libya. In this lawless land, Libyan Christians have to keep their faith secret or risk punishment, arrest, or death. Number three, Somalia. Islamist extremists consider Somali Christians high-value targets, so the tiny population of only a few hundred secret believers keep out of sight. Number two, North Korea. There are around 400,000 Christians in North Korea. All of them must hide their faith. Discovery means exile, execution, or being worked to death in horrific labor camps. Number one, Afghanistan. The Taliban takeover means that Afghanistan is the new number one, the most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian. Many Christians have become refugees. Those who remain must keep their faith utterly secret. There are countries where Christians live in fear, but fear can lead to courage and courage leads to hope. At least 360 million Christians around the world experience high levels of persecution and discrimination, but they have not given up. And for over 65 years, Open Doors has stood with them. Where Christians are persecuted, our global underground networks supply smuggled Bibles and Christian books, spiritual care, emergency food and aid, training and legal advice. Where Christians are free, we work with local churches to raise our voices in prayer, to speak truth to those in power, to strengthen our persecuted family around the world. Because there are countries where Christians have to stay silent, and there are countries where Christians can make a noise. But we are all connected. We are all family. And together, we can help one another to follow Jesus, no matter the cost. That is the reality for many Christians around the world. It said 360 million Christians face persecution in their countries right now. Now, for us, that's something that's hard to imagine. There are difficult moments in our life where we have to choose between right and wrong. But we don't experience quite what they do. We don't see quite what they do on a daily basis. But when Jesus spoke in here in Luke 6, he described a situation that they would have been well aware of, suffering for their faith, suffering economically, legally, for their faith. When we read Luke 6, verses uh, 17 to 26, uh, which are also called the Beatitudes, um, sometimes we can read them in a very abstract sense. We can read them in a romantic way. We can believe that it is romanticizing a poor lifestyle or romanticizing a hungry lifestyle or a sad lifestyle or a persecuted lifestyle. And it's saying those ways of life are better than the lifestyles that we have. I don't think that's what it's doing. I think what it's doing is just being upfront about the sort of people that are in the kingdom. Jesus is being upfront and honest about the sort of people that Christians were then and that Christians mostly are today as well. Christians will be sometimes poor. They will be sometimes hungry. They will sometimes be in tears and they might be persecuted. And they will end up in those places because they follow Christ, because they follow his commands in a world, in a country, in a society which doesn't want them to do those things. But I'm only telling half a story here. 
Because while in these passages Jesus does look at disciples and acknowledges the poverty they experience, the hunger they experience, the, the tears they experience, and how they are rejected for their faith, and he, he says there's more to come, he also tells them that they are blessed. Jesus promises them that it will all be worth it. While they might suffer now, there is something coming that is better. Though they might be poor now, it's okay because those are the very people that will inherit the riches of the kingdom of God. Though they might be hungry now, that is okay. They don't need to worry because one day they receive all they need to be satisfied. Though they might weep now, though there is reason for tears now, it's okay because God is going to do something so incredible that it will make you be filled with joy. It will make you laugh. Jesus promises for those who suffer for their faith, a great reward awaits you in heaven. He says you, you might suffer now. There might be suffering in the short term, but something good is coming. He also says for those who, who don't suffer now, for those who don't follow him, for those who don't um, uh, do what is right and suffer for it, then there is no good coming for them. He says that one day there will come a great reversal where the wrongs will be righted and the poor will be made rich. And this blessing is not just simply something that is in the future. Jesus says in verse 23 that when we are persecuted, we can be happy now. We can leap for joy for a great reward awaits you in heaven. In the same way in the run-up to Christmas, the joy of Christmas starts to bleed into the preceding months, earlier and earlier every year, and starts to take over as you prepare for it, you look forward to it, and you, you live in joy for it. So the joy of heaven can start to bleed into our lives now. As we suffer in this world, as our, our brothers and sisters suffer around the world, they can do so, facing it with an iron hope of joy. There is something good coming, and that affects how they live right now. We are blessed now, for we have safety in Christ. We have security in Christ, in what he will one day do for us. And we will never truly understand Christianity until we understand that end, that end goal. Because after all, what sense does it make for us to follow our faith when for so many people around the world it simply leads to suffering and to pain in their lives? How can we, in good faith, invite someone into Christianity knowing that it might cause their friends to reject them, their workplace to fire them, their families to look at them in shame? Even in this country, where it's relatively easy to be a Christian, I imagine that we all know people who have faced hardship for making that choice to follow Christ or for choosing to follow a particular teaching of Christ in a particular situation. But this passage tells us why it is worth it. It is worth it because these people inherit the kingdom of God. It is worth it because God will save his people. There will come a day when Christ will return, and when he returns, he will finish what he started. He will bring the people true rest. You get a glimpse of what that looks like in Revelation 22, 1-4, which I'll read for you now. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. No longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him. 
and they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. And there will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. In that situation, blessed, blessed are the poor, for they gain that kingdom. Blessed are the hungry, for there was plenty of food in that vision. Blessed are those who weep, for they will have their God there to comfort them. Blessed are those who are hated, for their God will shine upon them. In this world, there will be suffering for people who follow Christ. But for Christians, we have a future hope, a promise. The God who has saved us will continue to do so and will finish the work he has already started in us. Now, I would like you to take a moment to reflect on what I've just said. So, uh, behind me, there are two questions that are going to appear, hopefully. Great. So, with the people around you, uh, just ones or twos, I would like you to answer those questions. What do you think life will be like once Jesus has returned? And how do you think that will affect your life now? How do you think that should affect your life right now? So, that, so turn in little groups of the people around and chat through those two questions. I will not ask you to feedback, so you can be honest to each other. Okay? Awesome. Do you want to bring your discussions to an end? Awesome. Thanks, guys. As I said, I'm not going to pick on you to share what you're talking about, uh, but I hope you, you reflected on some things and, and your answers to those questions above and how the end game of Christianity might affect how you live your life now. I want to close by saying that I fear what I call the question. Okay? Now, the question is something I need to explain to you, because um, as a Christian, um, I try and live in a way uh, to make sure my life uh, pleases God. Okay? I try and take the wisdom of the Bible and, and apply that to live my life. I'm not always very good at it, but I give it a go. But that sometimes means that I choose to do things in a different way to the people around me who might not be Christians and might not be doing that. Or I choose to believe certain things that aren't necessarily the same as what the people around me believe. And that affects how I approach things in my life, such as work, relationships, or politics. Now, for some, some of my beliefs, they actually heavily contrast the people around me. They are radically different to the people around me, so much so that I'd be a little embarrassed sometimes if people knew what I believed. I'm actually worried and scared about how they would react if they knew about how I believed at life, about life. Would they ridicule my faith? Would they, uh, would they regard me as intolerant? Would they uh, say what I believe is stupid and based on some ancient book that's no longer relevant? I'm worried that they will do that. So I live in fear of the question, this is that moment when I'm talking to someone who's not a Christian, and they ask me about my beliefs. They might ask me about a particular one, one they don't, dis they don't agree with, or they might ask me about something controversial and ask me what I think about it. And I'm faced with a moral dilemma. Do I tell them the truth about what I believe and risk potentially losing a friend, or risk maybe even losing my job if it's in the workplace? Or do I dodge it? Do I perhaps even lie to them and say, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty much the same as what you believe with a few slight differences? What do I do in that situation? Because it certainly feels easier to do the latter of those two things. It makes me less scared to simply go along with whatever the conversation is doing and not state my point, not be honest about my beliefs. But that would not be truthful. That would not be honest, and frankly, it would not be right. In this world, we're going to face a lot of times when we face dilemmas like that. 
we're going to face dilemmas where we, ha we have to ask ourselves, do we do what is right, even though it might cause ourselves short-term consequences that are negative? Or do we do what is wrong to protect ourselves now? That dilemma might be about being honest with what we believe in a, in a conversation with colleagues at work. It might be about financial integrity at work or in the workplace or in a charity we help out with. It could be, do we simply choose to go along with what all our friends are doing when they've had a few drinks at night? But when we next face a dilemma like that, I would like us to think about the Beatitudes in Luke. Blessed are those who suffer now for following Christ, because ultimately they will inherit the wealth of the kingdom of God. Jesus is not naive about the potential struggles that we face in this world, the struggles we face for choosing to follow him, for choosing to do what is right, and the impact that can have on our lives. He is upfront and he is honest about them. Yet he points to something that is greater than that suffering that might be caused. He points to something that is greater than those consequences. He points to the work that he is going to do how he is going to renew the world, and when he does, he is going to ensure that those who suffered for doing good are vindicated and that justice is done. So next time you are faced with a dilemma, I would encourage you to consider playing the long game and thinking about how sometimes it's better to suffer now for what you'll get later. And would the band like to come back up? I'm just going to finish in prayer. I'm going to pray for people around the world who right now are suffering for their faith. Uh, because frankly, we've got it quite easy. But there are many people who these dilemmas are serious and they have consequences uh, far beyond social ones, but actually legal. They can end up in jail um, or they can lose their lives. Father, we thank you that you have forgiven us and brought us into your family. And we know there are many people around the world in our family who are suffering for following you, who have been bold and have stood up for you, and they have suffered at the hands of their family, their friends, and their governments. We pray for those people, and we pray that they might be comforted, that you might remind them of the hope that you give them, and that you might relieve their suffering. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.